0: Hey, everybody, this is Dave from Nerds on Film. Hey, wanted to just chat with you for a second. If you're having fun listening to Brian and Eric talk about history week to week, why not hop on over to the other podcast and listen to Brian, myself, and Sarah Ashley talk about films. We talk about film theory. No, we don't. We talk about actors. Yes, we do. We talk about movies to no end. It's a great time. It's a little bit more adult, but it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Check it out.
1: Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Sound check. Check two.
2: Sound check. Sound check. Check three. Pigs in space. All
1: right, man. So, you, are you ready?
2: Oh yeah, I'm. I'm so excited for tonight's topic. And uh, to prepare, I did some research and rewatched the uh, movie Fast Five. At the end of Fast Five, they have this like um, this super gigantic. Uh, Safe that they pulled out of a wall using two and or four uh, muscle cars, and they're dragging it through the streets of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, Rio de Janeiro, and and it's so fascinating because this is like a super alloy aluminum atom, and it's like you think it would get into the concrete, but it's creating all these sparks and everything. It's uh, it's utterly fascinating. What What the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about our topic for this evening: science fiction.
1: Damn it! It's It's science science fiction!
2: fiction. You serious?
1: Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Rickmont. Sorry, Sorry I, was very channel- dramatic, sir. I was
0: channeling a little Shatner for a moment.
1: Yes, you were. And with us tonight, as you've heard from our cold open, is none other than Kevin
2: Sue. Sue. Zutorious. welcome sir okay thank you Thank you. I, i'm very very glad to be here well you well, kind of had to have you be, sir
0: you kind of had to be for this one
1: yeah yeah well we really wanted sarah to be here but our schedules got crossed and she couldn't she couldn't make it tonight yeah so
0: we'll just settle for kevin instead
1: yeah well it's the story of my life people settling for me <laughs> yeah. better settling yeah. for you than settling on you
2: yeah, uh, that hippo did love me a lot, and thank goodness it didn't love me that much. <laughs> well done. No, done. I was not a zookeeper in my past life. But you were kicked out of a lot of zoos. Well... You know, I thought it was funny to imitate the animals, and apparently that got them really aggro. It got them really plant-oriented?
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I thought I thought aggro is used as a term to... A shorthand for aggravation, but... It's a hipster word, It is a yeah. hipster,
1: don't, yeah. Don't, yeah. do also means, like, you no, know, for, you know, agriculture. Right, you do but,
0: not use hipster words on this show. We, we barely tolerate the fact that I wear a fedora.
1: Eric, I am totes displeased with what you're saying right now.
0: Oh, my dear. I hate myself for saying that. Well, now that he's
1: gone, Hey, I'm JK, man.
0: Kevin, aren't you the one who has the biggest
2: problem with, with the LOLs? Oh, not only do I have a problem with that, it is one of my worst pet peeves. That, along with getting to the movie theater and not getting an optimal seating and not getting it settled into a movie, that drives me up a wall. Yeah. All right, so full confession, I did live in Santa Cruz for a certain time, so I'm kind of like acclimated to that hipster, hippie uh, lifestyle, but now that I no longer live there, I'm slowly getting
0: out of it. Good. Start now, faster.
2: Like you got man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <coughs> Santa Cruz is not nearly as hippie as it used to be. Oh, Let's I be beg to differ. No,
0: wait. wait I beg. When to was differ. the last time you were in Santa Cruz? Yeah, because Martha and I ago. were there probably it is, a couple of weeks ago. It is very hippie. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, I think it's worse than it used to be.
2: Uh, my dad actually uh, lived in Santa Cruz for a spell as well during the '60s, and so
0: that doesn't count. That's a whole time bubble in of itself that was actually surgically removed from time and exists as its own universe
1: since this is a history podcast let's fill our audience in on what we're talking about so in the Bay Area (laughs) uh, Santa Cruz California was a surfing community as well as a beachfront community it still is Yeah, definitely definitely still a surfing community but um, in the 60s to make a, a very concise story of it the hippie movement made their home in Santa Cruz, essentially, yeah. and and
2: the greater Bay Area as well.
1: Yeah, but mostly in Santa heavily Cruz. concentrated in that, and, and obviously in San Francisco as well. Yes, but there was a, a very strong anti corporate, you know, very uh, mentality up until Santa Cruz got remodeled in like the early nineties. So uh, there's still little bits and pieces of that.
2: Oh, definitely here it, and there. In fact, uh, trying to get a, uh, a any company that wants to build a store in Santa Cruz has to jump through so many hoops. It's a miracle that there's a Chipotle there. Just to put it out there,
1: yeah. There's also a gap, but you know, yeah.
2: There's a gap downtown, mm-hmm. dead center, almost of mm-hmm. Santa Cruz. I hear you. A gap.
1: But at the same time, they also bring in a lot of business too. So it's a it's a, it's a tourist sword.
0: town, and it needs business. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I do kind of actually find the Gap shocking. Chipotle, Chipotle, I can I can get. That makes oh, sense to me. and by the way, there's a Forever 21 right across the street from the Gap. Yeah. Really? For those who are interested yeah.
1: in a little landmark, uh, of course, the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Yeah. The Giant Dipper is the oldest wood coaster on the West Coast.
0: On the West Coast?
1: Yes. That's awesome. On the West Coast. <laughs>
0: Which I have never been on.
1: Oh, we will get you on there one day. No, no, no. Yes, we will.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yes, we'll see. yeah we will definitely get yeah, we'll you see. on that roller coaster ride well i'm glad that we're talking about santa cruz because that brings us to today's topic hemp man what okay we're not actually talking
1: about hemp. no but let's (laughs) talk about what we did over the weekend though can we
0: yeah i think
1: that's the real reason why we're here kind of
0: have to so listeners uh we had a a really amazing weekend we went to bacon 2013 let's back up for
1: a second let's talk about the whole
0: weekend (sighs) ladies and gentlemen brian moriarty college graduate
1: you guys, thank you so much. In all seriousness, congratulations. Well done. Kevin was just like, cracking his knuckles. He was like, hey, congratulations. Alright,
2: welcome. Welcome to the real world, punk.
0: (laughs) That was your knuckles? Yeah, those were my knuckles. You went to the school
1: theater, now you're going to the school of hard knocks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Brian, again, congratulations. Awesome party, by the way.
1: Oh, that's true. It was was really special to have I literally had everybody who was there from my, literally my first, my oldest friend from day one of kindergarten, uh, all the way through the nerds at Neuronomy, um, co-workers from Apple, former co-workers from Apple, um, family, family, friends I hadn't seen in a long time. It was really wonderful to have everybody there.
0: Well, his offer you, sir.
1: Thank you. But anyway, that's... Leading into that, yes,
0: and then we went to BayCon.
1: BayCon 2013. So those who are not in the Bay Area, BayCon is their annual science fiction convention. We figure we're a group of nerds. Science fiction, not too far off. Probably make some good connections there. So we were there at the uh, Santa Clara Hyatt. Convention Center.
0: Yeah, it was. Well, it's the Convention Center that's attached to the Hyatt.
1: Correct. Pretty small, very intimate. About 1,200 people.
0: Yeah, roughly. And, you know, I have to thank the, the folks at the Hyatt as well, because they were super, super nice and courteous and really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's no big surprise the Baycon keeps going back there year after year. And yeah. they're always very much welcome as well. And that's always really nice to see the, the local, small but very loyal sci-fi community mm-hmm. who comes together and joins there. And they've been doing this for years, uh, decades, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was so cool to go and be represented as Nerdonomy. Uh, this year, and we may very well be back next year in a better oh, capacity. We will be back next year. Well, we There's will. no
1: question about that.
0: But we might be back in more than a capacity than we had.
1: We might be coming back to do a panel, yeah. which would be really, really freaking amazing.
0: So we're, we're we'll see if we can do that. That'd be cool. Hey, live podcast would be amazing.
1: Bay Area Nerds, please voice your uh, your opinions on that. Use our listener feedback on our website to say, hey, would you be willing to go to a live recording at BayCon 2014? That'd be That'd be pretty awesome. cool. Uh, oh, we also had a, we had a fan. We, we did. met we met a fan. Our good friend Natalie. Yeah, and she, she came
0: by, and we have to give her a shout out. And all of her coworkers who all get together and listen to us weekly and enjoy the podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, she was so sweet. She just saw our table, and then she just gave us a little this heart symbol, and uh, she just was gushing about the podcast with us. And she was really really sweet, very high energy, which was. Uh, I think you need it to be, be when you're working for three days or three or four days straight. It's particularly
0: what she was doing because she was working in the DIY craft room and right. she was just constantly inundated with people coming in there and making some really cool stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And she was super sweet. She sent over the guy who built his own lightsaber. Yeah, after the uh, the PVC pipe in the other lights. Because we missed lights. it and
0: we wanted to, do, to learn yeah, about and it. Yeah, so and was Larry so cool.
1: Larry was super nice. Came over and talked with us for a little bit. And I think that was the coolest thing is we were just kind of sitting there being friendly with people and. There must have been, like, four or five times where we had someone who saw our, our banner, interested in asking what what, Norm, what what the podcast was all about. And then just kind of, like, they felt so casual. And it's, like, sitting at the table and talking with us for, like, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, pretty and, amazing. Yeah, nice. and it made our day even more fun.
0: So big shout-out to all of you new listeners to the Nerdonomy Network who met us and found us at BayCon. And mm-hmm. a shout-out to our existing listeners who got a chance to meet up with us there. Uh, thanks very much. We will be back next year. And, uh... I want to make sure that you address our banner, though, by name, yeah. Brian.
1: Oh, uh, Bruce, yes, indeed. Yes. Bruce Banner, of course. <laughs> um, I do have to say, though, real quick, I think my favorite person we talked to was Father John. Because- yeah.
0: That was the funniest part, because there was a Catholic... Um, there was, like a sp- was a Catholic convention in the same space as us. Well, not the same space, but it was on the other side of the convention center. But the fact that they were both booked for the same time, it was like, it was a calling for you, Brian. It was like you were meant to be there. Yeah,
1: and I didn't go, but Father John actually w- w- had come over. And he, you want to see something that's truly mind-bogglingly awesome, is uh, he was wearing his ecclesiastical collar, but he still had like this on this uh, like utility vest that was loaded with nerd flair. Yeah, on, right. it was so it cool. was amazing Pieces of flair? Yeah, pieces of flair from all over, and it was super cool, and he was, uh, I think the funniest thing he said so tell me, what's your podcast like? And we explained that like Nerds on History is very informative, that Nerds on Film is a little blue, and he says, probably nothing I already haven't heard. I dare you to say something I haven't already heard in confession.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's clearly never met Sean. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) He,
1: He... Sean says things that will turn you atheist. (laughs) Anyway. Very
0: cool uh, weekend, regardless. We will be back next year. And before we jump into today's topic, though, I do want to shoot out some listener feedback because we got some really nice feedback while we were at the convention. We were all there on our devices, as we often are. And we uh, got this really great shout out from Stephen via our Facebook page. I'll read it because it's a really quick one. Great podcast. No, really great podcast. I've listened to about 50% of your past episodes and I've cleared my schedule for the rest. Dentist appointment, pish posh, work, cough, cough. I've been letting all my like-minded friends know about the show. I love my history and can see that you do as well. Never thought I'd find a decent history podcast that took a punt at being entertaining as well as thought-provoking. Anywho, kudos and keep them coming. Oh, I'd love an American Revolution episode. Steven, we are already
1: on that one, don't worry. We're on
0: that one. It may very well coincide with a certain holiday in the month of July. I wonder what I could be. National talking Ice Cream about. Month, obviously. Well, yeah, obviously.
2: Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was about to sing the, the circus theme song, but I should be singing something a little more patriotic. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Maybe there you go, Kevin. <laughs> sorry. Clearly I live in America. <laughs>
1: yes, you do indeed. And I just want to more true sign of the average American citizen. <laughs>
2: I definitely just want to throw this out there. Um, I love the fact that uh, we are now a priority in your life, but a doctor's appointment, dentist appointment, in school should also be a priority. Just putting that out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think we should work. be a, 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 a yeah. close fourth.
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. After right oxygen, above, right above family right above family (laughs)
1: right right above family in between that and marriage and right after oxygen (laughs) um please do not take me seriously otherwise i will not respond to solicitations from divorce lawyers i just won't do it i'm sorry uh Uh, anyhow though steven thank you so much for your shout out and also steven we literally as we were getting ready to record tonight we got your nerds on film commentary hilarious we will read it out on our next nerds on film episode uh, that we're going to record in a couple of days, so... Oh, one more thing. I do want to let
0: everyone know, uh, thanks to popular demand, we now have the pictures of the Nerd Cave up online. You can see them on our Facebook page for both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film, and a couple of pictures on the Twitter, but we really want you to go check out the Facebook page. So go have a look at the Nerd Cave and enjoy it. As
1: we've established, it's much bigger on the inside. It is. It is. It is.
2: is, is, is.
1: Um, but you know, <laughs> when we decided we were going to be at Bacon this year, we really thought it'd be cool to do an episode to align with it so that we had... And we thought about this months in advance. Yeah. We we're totally prepared. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> to think about, well, we've never really talked about the history of science fiction. We've we've kind of tangentially mentioned it right. in other topics. Tangentially? Tangentially, yes.
0: Is that an actual word? I know tangerinas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, they're because, delicious. Yeah
1: tangentially as in like referring to a tangent right right right. Yes. exactly
0: no i because i've never heard it
2: put that i've never heard that word before so that's why uh, i had to ask if only there
0: was a podcast that would tell you a word and teach you all about it I coming know, that's, soon nerds
1: like a, coming soon sounds like a brilliant idea
2: what
1: what anyway move on we're not ready to go live with that yet Move on. that's true so before we get into the history of science fiction We need to have a very earnest discussion of what science fiction is because we had this discussion on the Nerds on Film podcast early on when we dealt with the sci-fi and destruction movies um, because analyzing it from a literary standpoint or even from a film standpoint, science fiction is very flexible and very subjective. Given this is a history podcast, I think science fiction is a little more empirical in this case because we're talking about the uh, documented occurrences of the publishing of literature and their responses to cultural phenomenon and their impact on the culture. And I think when you get that do that you have, actually have a much more specific title for what true science fiction is, what what a purist would say science fiction is. And then you get into subgenres and things like that and then you get all these variations. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Eric, before we actually get to Burken the definition, what do you what do you have to say?
0: Well, to me science fiction is something that is thought provoking that imagines and thinks beyond what is already established that is willing to take that risk and go that extra mile it, i don't think it has to be so strictly defined i think that the message of science fiction is far more important than the definition of science fiction and i'm willing to accept things that that go well beyond Very strict guidelines to say, well, this was a particular time period. This was the first time this concept was introduced, and therefore this must be the starting point of all science fiction. I think that science fiction, in its very nature, is heavily influenced by work that has come before it and heavily influenced by thoughts of what could be. And so, anytime you introduce those two elements together, I think that has potential to be science fiction. And I have some examples that I'm going to share this evening that maybe you might consider to be proto-science fiction. I think a lot of the elements that we recognize as part of modern science fiction definitely have an origin point here. But I'm talking about stuff that's, you know, 17, 1700 yeah. BCE.
1: And why aren't those considered fantasy, is the question. Because fantasy achieves the same ends as science fiction does.
0: Well, let me let me go into it when we go more into the actual examples themselves. I don't want to jump the gun on it. Okay. Let's, let's get Kevin's intake on this. Let's Then let's attempt to define as broadly as possible, in my opinion, I think we should do science fiction, and then we will apply what we know to it, and then we'll see, maybe we need to redefine it towards the end of the episode.
1: Okay. Okay. Go ahead.
0: My definition of science fiction,
2: or my understanding of science fiction, um, it basically stems from very similar to what you said, Eric, um, ideas and thoughts of uh, the current modern times that we live in and what has affected us in our past that projects us into the future, whether in terms of storytelling, like, for example, with WALL-E, which is a one of the best science fiction movies of all time, in my opinion, um, you have these uh, humans that have abandoned Earth because they've trashed the place. Now, that is something that we as a species are doing right now, and this story takes that idea into the future where it completely decimates the planet. So, something like that to take what we have now, knowledge, experience, history as well, uh, and conceptualizing it in a way to... Tell a story about, you know, something in the future, but how it relates to us in the current times. So it's taking what we have now to tell a story upon reflection of where we are as a society.
1: Well, I think any good story does that. Well, undoubtedly. Is a reflection of where we are. I see
2: this done way more with the realm of science fiction. I think it's a staple of science
0: fiction. It is. It completely and utterly is. So, Brian, how could you broadly define science fiction as a genre, then?
1: Well, see... Your depictions of science fiction, Kevin, are very contingent on the concept of a future. Yes. And I don't think you need the future to have science fiction. You can have science fiction take place in the present.
2: And in an alternate universe and things like that, absolutely.
1: Yes. Or even
0: in the past, in a sense, sure.
1: I would say maybe with the past, because it depends on what your channel for time travel would be. To determine whether it was science fiction. Well, time is all
0: relative, right? If we're talking about the past in the sense that this this science fiction story takes place twenty thousand years ago, but on an alien planet. Keep
1: in mind that science fiction existed pre the, exi- the existence of the theory of relativity, too. So
0: absolutely, I agree with that completely. Yeah, I- well, I- that's factual. I would, so. I would agree that it existed even far beyond beyond that. All right. Well, I just want
2: to toss out like uh, the Webster Dictionary <laughs> definition of science fiction.
0: Go ahead, please. Yeah, actually, okay. you know what? I think that's a good next line step let's right, do yeah. that go ahead spock
1: would be proud eric yeah very proud. Do, you do you have okay. oxford or is it just merriam-webster
2: i think it's
0: merriam-webster okay all right so let's just go with webster i think webster's fine
1: okay well i bring that up because uh, the oxford english dictionary is considered the authoritative book on the english language i mean for crying going out against loud,
0: authority
2: well for crying out loud they do have DO in the dictionary there as well so they I are understand. authoritative so, so, absolutely
1: so, Wait, Merriam-Webster or Oxford? Oxford. <laughs> oh, of course they are, because they're also done through Oxford University, yes. yeah.
2: So, All right, so, science fiction. Noun. Fiction based on imagined future scientific or technological advances and major social or environmental changes frequently portraying space or time travel and life on other
0: planets. Okay, I like that. Because it works for my case. <laughs> oh, what no. was it
1: Sherlock Holmes said? Uh, using, twisting facts to support theories rather than uh, drawing theories from facts. Fuel yeah. to the fire, Eric.
2: Fuel to the fire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Just saying. We're going to have a little nerd debate here, I think. It's going to be quite co- spo- spirited and fun.
0: I think the blood pressure in this room has raised ever so slightly.
1: Oh, I'm ready to throw down. Oh,
0: let's do this. I'm going to hit you in the face with my iPad if you disagree with me I'm, too much. I'm
2: drinking Rockstar right now. I'm hyped up on energy. Let's do this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can make a suggestion, now that we've shared our opinions on what we... Each considered to be our interpretation of science fiction. Well, I
1: haven't. I haven't actually discussed my my definition of science fiction is just yet. But oh,
0: I'm sorry. I thought you did in the beginning. Kevin. Yeah,
1: I thought you did as well. No, no. I okay. think
0: there's more. There's part two because <laughs> I
1: haven't defined it yet. I qualified it, but I didn't actually define what I thought my view of science fiction.
0: Go ahead, please. Yes, yeah,
1: please continue. Okay. Historically speaking, science fiction is rooted in uh, at least in its initial form in a discussion through the narrative on the ethics of science, okay? And I'll give you a good example of that. Some argue that The Last Man, which was written by uh, Jean-Baptiste Cousin de Granville in
0: 1805,
1: because it dealt with time travel, was considered a proto-science fiction storyline. I would argue, though, that it wasn't until Frankenstein in 1818. And when you listen to Frankenstein's full title, and I've said this in the Nerds on Film podcast, so forgive me if I sound like a broken record, but the full title for Frankenstein is Frankenstein or... The modern Prometheus. Uh, well, guys, let me ask you, what is, for the maybe the, the people in the audience who are not as caught up on mythology, why is the story of Prometheus significant?
2: All right, so please correct me on this first point, and then I will get on with it. Was Prometheus man or a god? He was a man. All right, so there it is. All right, so with the myth... Well, actually, no, he might have been a god. See, so that's, sorry. like, I keep hearing different... Ideas behind. Okay, but nevertheless, it, but the mythology y- is yeah. Prometheus steals the power of God in the case of fire and gives it to man, so that way man can evolve with this. Like, yeah,
1: essentially man getting man technology. Reached, exactly,
2: technology. The pinnacle of technology at this point was fire. Man had reached a stalemate. We can procreate, we can eat, but what else can we do as a species? And no pun intended, but pun intended a spark of light ignites the rest of the human race.
0: Right. It essentially provides us a warmth and a light to gather around, and for the first time we can come together as a civilization and become civilized. And
1: he was punished by the gods eternally for his crime.
2: Yes. Stealing Uh, power from the gods, you're not going to get away with that.
1: Right. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein at a time when we were finally starting to advance into what we would consider modern science, right? Right. The scientific method, of course, has its basis in Galileo back in the uh, 16th century, or maybe even early 17th. I think it's 16th century. But when we start to apply that to all these discoveries, like, for example, we're starting to develop a periodic table of elements now. Modern chemistry is starting to take form. We're starting to advance in ways we had never started to advance beforehand. And people had started to experiment with with the concept, well, can we now use this to make human life better? Can we even use it to enhance human life to a point... Where we can prevent death. And these were actual discussions going on. Whether they were actually successful, of course, was totally a different point. But Mary Shelley's story was more or less a, a warning sign, and it was more or less a commentary on the attitudes of scientists who were essentially playing God, right? In Victor Frankenstein creating the creature, it's God creating man, right? But instead of the normal, normal Christian allegory of man being loved by God, the creature is shunned by his creator because of his hideousness. Never mind the fact that the creature is eloquent and kind in, it, in his nature, but because of he was shunned, develops rage and becomes a murderer.
2: Which, I just want to add in this point of, not necessarily contention, but confusion. Dr. Frankenstein makes this monster, the monster comes alive, and he is... Repulsed by repulsed it. Repulsed by it. He is repulsed by his own creation, yes. which is, a, I would say, a social commentary on why people think God hates humans. But... Wouldn't it make sense that he should have found parts that were more pleasing to him in order to make the Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster? Well, you sure, but I yeah, think... Yeah, but you're the, dealing with,
0: you know, at this point, re- recently dead tissue, taking the best pieces that you can, even if you took all the most beautiful supermodels in the world... Well, it doesn't ar- have to be supermodels. Well, I'm just using it as an example. Take the arm and the leg and the head off of one and put them all together, you're still going to come up with something, I think, pretty repulsing. Absolutely.
1: And it may not have been that Frankenstein didn't realize the horror of what he had done until he fully until had it was alive. That's exactly. he started chanting, "It's alive! Yeah. It's alive! And, what have I done?" And ultimately, that's why it mimics the Promethean tale because Frankenstein eventually punishes himself by going off to hide and to die alone because he because the monster, as punishment, ends up killing everybody who's close to him: his younger brother, his wife. As well as n- several others. Uh, uh, <laughs> so
2: many poor farmers.
0: <laughs>
2: so <laughs> Their pitchforks weren't sharp um, enough.
1: And this, is, of course, is not the Boris Karloff Frankenstein we were used to, this mindless hulk that just grunts. Yeah. Frankenstein, uh. he has a, such a great quote. It says, I do not eat the meat. I do not eat meat. Uh, nuts and berries shall give me sufficient nourishment. Sufficient. Sufficient the word, nourishment. The
2: fact that he uses the word sufficient like, speaks volumes. Exactly. Well, he's an elegant He's creature. an
1: eloquent and learned man, exactly. Yeah. So that is why I am very uh, much of the mindset that science fiction and its nature has something to do with the ethical ramifications of human actions in the realm of science. Why I believe Star Trek would be considered science fiction, Star Wars, on the other hand, would be much more a space-themed fantasy than would be science fiction.
0: And I'm not disputing that. I, I agree with that completely. Kevin looks like he might not completely. We will get to that We point. will get to that, absolutely. But to me, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm not disagreeing with anything. But I also see science fiction as an outlet for a dream, for imagination, for thinking about what could be. And thinking about it Thinking even, forward. Thinking yeah. forward. But even within the context of a time when technology by today's standards was considered comparatively primitive. If we may, if I can jump into a couple go ahead, of please. examples from, from the ancient world.
2: Well, I think, yes, this is the starting point we have to go with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I
0: think that we should take this through time and and journey with, you know, science fiction yeah. as it's evolved. And Doctor Who as
1: Let me preface this by saying I don't want to come off as sounding... I mean, you know I mean, I'm a very passionate guy, so I have very strong opinions at times. I don't want to come off... Like this is an unopen-minded un- definition. You no know, society only progresses forward because we're forced to look at ourselves and redefine what we know. So, uh, oh, I wasn't for, thinking that. Yeah, yeah, Trust yeah. Well, I want to make sure our audience knows that too, because I don't know how I sound and, on the yes, radio. I, I'm going to put but, this
2: out there. I don't get passionate about, or the audience hasn't listened to uh, me get passionate about a lot, except for Pixar. But I will say this: I think what makes science fiction and science fantasy uh, so brilliant is that it's so open to interpretation and appreciation yeah. on so many different levels. And, no, and that's how I'm going to treat this conversation. Right. Yeah. This, as wrong as you may be about Star Wars being science <laughs> fantasy, <laughs> I'm going to embrace it as much as I can and share.
0: And keep in mind, at the end of this podcast, we are not going to come out with an official definition of science fiction that everyone's going to accept. There's no way. It, that's, the whole, that's not the point. The point yeah. is no. to have this conversation about what science
1: fiction However, is. from a historical standpoint, the term science fiction derives itself from the 19th century. Of course. I will say that.
2: The actual term that we yes. now and refer it was, to as sci-fi yeah,
1: as well. And it yeah. was largely done because of the works of Mary Shelley and, of course, later on Jules Verne and uh, Sure. Terms Jay like Stewart. gravity,
0: however, existed much later than actual gravity came into existence.
1: Sure, exactly. Wait, I'm just, seriously? Saying, I'm yes. just saying.
0: I know, right? <laughs> like, I, I I am
2: completely confused by that. Well, I, like, how we, could we gravity didn't the...
0: just start existing once we Oh, no, you know, I know that, it. but but... How did, well, oh, we, we did, I'm now, sorry. We didn't have a
2: word for it until Newton. I thought you said that the word gravity existed before we called it gravity.
0: It did, but it meant something completely different. Okay. It was actually referring to the type of gravy that you placed upon meat. Gravitas. Gravitas. Comes from the, the Greek gravitas. Gravitas, gravitas meaning yeah.
1: strength, meaning pull, yeah. magnetism to you. So,
0: Interesting. See, his was real, mine was fake.
1: Yeah. Newton used. Stop it. <laughs> used that as to describe the force that pulls us to the earth. Gotcha.
0: So now, let's start at the beginning. Listeners, I apologize. We're going to have 40 or 50
1: tangents this episode. I promise. But that's okay. If you're looking for a through line, you might want to stop now. Take some anti-stress medication. Whatever will lower your blood pressure. Maybe drink a little wine with that. Do some rhythmic breathing. I don't recommend that. Maybe put on some Enya. Oh no 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 don't and do then, that don't do that. Don't listen to Brian. Well, and, and, Are you is, trying to
0: kill our listeners? Ambia ambient. You can put ambient on and, it and then layer on. it.
1: <laughs> layer our podcast. It'd be great. So we were we were talking about the gun Flash going, Sail away, sail away, sail away, sail away, sail away. I'm gonna walk out again. <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we got we lost track here. Um, I'd
0: like to just dial it back to the ancient world for a moment and just give some examples of what I think could be considered science fiction, even from an ancient shock. perspective. You bring it back to the ancients.
2: Let me guess. Does Egypt come into play I at all? I don't have a
0: single <laughs> example from ancient Egypt. I call shenanigans. Rome. No. I call shenanigans. Not Rome either. Another ancient civilization that is, unfortunately, oftentimes, in my opinion, I think, overlooked on a lot of history podcasts, and we should talk about it in more length at some point, uh, but ancient India. Okay. Sanskrit and the the ancient Hindu texts that uh, existed, you know, we're talking 1700 BCE, a very Mm -hmm. long time ago, had some pretty incredible ideas that were being floated around. Pray do tell. Okay. So... The Sanskrit hymns that make up a particular Hindu epic, a very famous one, from really run around the 4th or 5th century, is Ramayana. And I'm sure I'm probably saying this wrong, and I apologize if I am. Probably I'm
1: Ramanaya. Ramayana,
0: maybe, perhaps. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'll spell it for anyone who's interested in Googling it. R-A-M-A-Y-A-N-A. That's a lot of A's. Ramayana. That's That's Ramanaya. what I would think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is defining... Some really incredible ideas that you don't really think of unless you think of science fiction. So when I'm talking about traveling in outer space, uh, venturing underwater, destroying cities with advanced flying machines that are defined, and I quote, as mechanical birds, another quote, jumping into space speedily with a craft using fire and water.
2: this is BCE
0: we're talking. Yes, this is BCE. Containing 12 pillars, one wheel, three machines... 300 pivots and 60 instruments. This is a quote from the actual poem itself, describing one of these mechanical flying fortresses that's destroying a city.
1: Fascinating. Now, where did they say that this derived? Just from man developing this on their own?
0: Uh, Yeah. it, it, It follows some really out there travel. I mean, you've got to really read it very carefully because it's going all over the place. It's yeah. going to within the realm of the gods and it's it's on Earth and it's influenced by man and it's influenced mm. by, you know, beings of, of higher power, right? So there is a mystical element to it right did we
1: know if the hindu religion at this point in time talked about the gods being like in the stars like we thought of it in the western world
0: i mean i have to kind of admit my ignorance in that i i don't really know the answer to that question i i, I would like to do a lot more research and really approach ancient india from a much um, deeper perspective going yeah a forward. very
1: fascinating civilization
0: oh absolutely and yeah. so many different civilizations all coexisting together all, all sorts of amazing stuff to touch on going forward but I also want to talk about one other kind of myth that goes on a little bit before that. And we're talking about you know a lot of ideas that were floating around as far back as 1700 BCE that were being brought together and then coalesced into kind of these epics, right? So there are stories that were written at different times by different people and then kind of brought together under a single unifying theme. Um, but there's another one from the 8th and 9th century that introduces the concept of time travel very early on, one of the earliest uh, examples of time travel. Again, this is BCE that we're talking about. Um, in which this uh, the king that's in this uh, story goes up to heaven and essentially meets with the creator of the universe, but upon returning back to the Earth, then finds that several hundred years have passed, whereas just a few minutes have passed for hmm. them. And yes, it's not science fiction in the sense that, okay, they were traveling close to the speed of light on a slingshot trajectory back around towards Earth, and when they came back, 400 years had passed, which is a very scientific, very uh, measurable, very technologically influenced explanation for the time travel, but the fact that somebody in that time thought of the concept of a great passage of time and this person not being influenced and affected by it and instead existing in a whole different world, to me, I think speaks true of a lot of the the themes of science fiction. Maybe you can't define it strictly within the genre because it wasn't meant to be. Right, to your point, it wasn't the same science fiction being written in the 19th century. But a lot of those key elements that I just talked about permeated throughout the e- eons and then end up in what we accept as the staples of science
1: fiction. Well, those are wonderful examples and definitely broadening. Very, really cool. And actually, some interesting parallels, too, because when you talk, you talk about these airships, I immediately thought of Edgar Rice Burroughs and the John Carter stories. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. the Princess of Mars.
0: And what I love is that they are very, um, you know, specifically mechanical. They have components in them. They have aspects of machinery that make them work. It's not magic.
1: And 3,000 years before the writing, uh, almost 4,000 years before the, uh, the writing of those stories, too. Yeah.
0: Well, like, uh, not quite that early, but it's. it's well, you still said pretty, was 1800 BCE. Well, 1700 BC is where we see some of these first examples coming together, but they really coalesce in and around 3 or 400 BCE, oh, okay. which is still very early on. So,
2: at this point in time, what is the most mechanical thing that man has like made and seen at this point, apart from a wagon in terms of a wheel and
0: axle? Well, the ancient Greeks were building, you know, computers essentially at the time that could predict. An abacus? Co- no, not an abacus. I mean, an actual, you know, mechanical computer in the sense that it would predict the past. Of the sun, solar eclipses, yeah. the movement with and the gears positions. and everything. Yeah, with it's gears and everything.
1: Arguably the oldest computer. Uh, they they have a, a reproduction of it.
0: They have a few. They have digital ones. They have actual ones. They've put back together as best mm-hmm. they can. They found that at the bottom of uh, I don't remember which particular bay it was, but it was near Greece or, or
1: Athens. And they could. This thing can still, or maybe I don't know if it's still functional, but no it could. Way. But it could accurately very accurately depict astronomical events taking yeah, place. it's not
0: functional. I mean, it was heavily compacted, and they had to actually use x-rays originally and then later uh, CT scans to to figure out all the different gears and how yeah. to make their own. But when they did it, they were talking about predicting solar eclipses and the passage of the, of the moon and the sun okay. hundreds of years in advance. So, it's- All right, so at that point, if that's the most mechanical... Item that
2: man has created and is aware of the idea of a mechanical flying ship. Like, where would that come from? Because there has to be an influence well, in order to create that an idea. Explain
0: to me the science behind warp drive, like the the pseudoscience of Star Trek. Something yeah. that I love and hold very near and dear to me, which we, we don't, have to tread softly on. I understand. No, no, you don't <laughs> tread softly. It's fine. What I will say, I will just shank you. But what I will say is uh, <laughs> that the actual science involved in much science fiction is very much make-believe. It's outside the realms of actual physics as we understand it, but we accept it because it's a component of what that story is. And in the case of warp drive, it's what propels them through the universe. Right. So we forgive them for its actual lack of explanation. It's It just works, right, and we're okay with that.
2: But what's ironic, I think, uh, living in our age, having Star Trek been around for, what, 60 years now? 60 or mm-hmm. so? Yeah. yeah. I, I find that Star Trek is quite possibly one of the most influential science fiction items that has actually proven results that we live in, live with today. Sure, like, but there's yeah.
0: stuff like tr- the transporter and things like that that just, in the realm of physics, just can't happen. But and people are trying. They're trying, but they're never going to achieve exactly what it was able to do in Star Trek. It's just beyond that realm. But the fact that they were able to imagine it is, to me, what's so impressive. That they saw birds flying in the sky... And they thought that birds, much like people... Are machines in a sense right? They're mechanical in a sense. That this body that I inhabit there are is parts a machine. and pieces
2: that are put together in order to uh, produce an yeah. action. So they had a yeah.
0: concept of a machine before an artificial machine. They had the living machines, nature around them themselves, and they were able to think. Well, what if it was made of material other than that? What if it was not? If it was constructed? If we could put something together?
2: Like, and I can totally see that, but I think there needs to be a if, just for me, not in terms of belief, but just in terms of understanding how they got to this point. I- like a little more a little more than
0: just nature. Can Go I get it.
1: spiritual for a second?
0: Shocking. I went ancient. You're going spiritual? This episode is there full is of so many surprises. There is a difference
1: between religion and spirituality, sir.
0: <laughs> I am very well aware. Go yeah. ahead,
1: please. Deepak Chopra talks about the infinite wisdom of your intuition, right? The intuition is the same part of your brain, what a lot of your imagination comes out of. One could make an argument that a lot of these were intuitive creations and that we're now, the analytical side of our brain is just catching up with, finally. It took us over 2,000, or almost 2,000 years, but we did eventually develop a flying machine and things that could propel into space yeah. that, at that time, would have never thought to be possible by their way of explaining it, by their own knowledge of the physical universe, which we don't call, we didn't, they didn't call science, but would have been their science. I,
0: I certainly don't want to Bogart, and I certainly don't want to you know take over this whole podcast. But I, or Jimmy Stewart, it. or Jimmy Stewart. It. Oh, okay. But I I have one other example from the ancient world, and that, that's my Your that's my it for the ancient okay. world. But one other example that I think is important to mention is a a story. It's actually a satire in many ways, but it's also I think got a lot of elements of science fiction. And this is from the second century A.D. Uh, and this comes to us from the the Syrian author uh, Lucian. And Lucian, who was uh, writing in Greek, who was Greek-speaking, wrote this interesting satire on what he considered really to be all these myths and ideas that all these famous writers before him, including Herodotus and you know uh, Homer and what have you, came up with. And he's essentially making fun of them, but he's doing it in a really interesting way because he's creating the most fantastical story he could possibly do to kind of explain to his listener, or readers I should say, not listener, he didn't have a podcast, but his <laughs> readers, that um, everything they were saying was, was utter garbage. And he calls it true history. And in his true version of history, he tells this really incredible story uh, about this guy who goes out on this adventure, and he's sailing through the, uh, the Strait of Gibraltar, uh, when he ends up getting picked up by this incredible wind, and the wind propels his ship into outer space, and he ends up landing on the moon. And there on the moon, he encounters an entirely alien civilization. And this alien civilization is at war with another alien civilization living on the surface of the sun. And they have all of these really incredible elements that we find in later science fiction playing out. And of course, he's actually making fun of all the people who came before him who wrote these, these epics and tales and mythology. But he's doing it in such a way that he's stretching his imagination to come up with it. And he's coming up with stuff that... And I'll quote some, some actual things that were pulled from this. For one, travel to outer space. Uh, encounter with alien life forms. Uh, the very first recorded event of this in any literature from around the world, he refers to them as being not of our people, of total aliens. Okay, not gods or anything. They're like us, but they're alien. Interplanetary warfare. The colonization of other planets, because they're actually trying to colonize a whole other planet. That's what this war is all about.
1: Right, because at this time, the sun and the moon were... Uh, sorry, we're both viewed as planets
0: in a sense. Still, yeah, yeah. Um, an artificial atmosphere because he actually refers to the need to be able to survive uh, out, you know, on these planets, and instead of out in the void. So he's making references to outer space, which is pretty forward-thinking. Uh, he talks about reflecting telescopes, creatures that uh, you know undergo gigantism, uh, all these really interesting ideas, even a whole set of physical laws that differ on these other planets some pretty forward-thinking stuff at really out there 200 does the, ce uh,
1: does the protagonist also have a sword the, whose blade is made of light because you're pretty much describing star wars i know
2: what i'm no, describing right, you're, you're pretty much <laughs> describing a princess of mars over here
1: yeah.
0: so many future science fiction writers would actually look to this as an example and and use it as inspiration so to me even though it was written and meant as a satire The fact that he was able to dream and imagine and come up with this incredible story shows, again, in my view, in my opinion, of what the real nature of science fiction is, which is that dream, which is that dream element.
1: There's nobody who will argue that that is what makes science fiction the most engaging, is that it is that you can literally dream up entire universes, entire worlds. Uh, It's a limitless art form. But I also think fantasy is a limitless art form. I think that the, what you got to get there, though, is you can have these things happening. It's true that there was no magic that was taking place. They were all just kind of getting there. There was no spells. There was no right incantations. In
0: some cases, it was technology, like these flying yeah, machines.
1: Yeah, no no divine intervention that got them to where they are, with the exception of the one little quick little anecdote of the time travel from the Indian story. Right. Nevertheless, we're talking about using natural means to accomplish these fantastical ends. Maybe that is a more general enough... Um, category or a characteristic of science fiction using natural means to accomplish fantastic ends.
0: I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. And I think that really does set it apart from when we think about fantasy in literature. Right? Because then you
1: have magic when you deal with fantasy. Exactly. Yeah. And Star Wars actually has elements of both because you have the Force, of course, which is a mystical force, but then you also and have a religion. Of, and a religion, yes. And they
0: really only got scientific with the Force in the in the in the episodes one and two and three when they were actually yeah. referring to it as i mean they did that in the fan fiction yeah. and literature as well but leading up to that well, which was inspiration to that in the movies i
1: would i would say that star wars also got more science fictitious in the expanded universe because they used a lot of explanation of the technology there how the lightsaber actually works what right. holocrons are how they they function how uh chlorians, yeah how right. the the warp core works on no, the uh
0: no that's star trek Warp
1: cores. No, there's a warp core in the uh, N1 Nubian they, airship in episode warp one. Warp core?
0: Did well, they don't. They, no, sorry, they, don't it, they only call it the, the warp core. That's expanded. Uh, hyperdrive. Though. I'm sorry. They call yeah, it the hyperdrive. hyperdrive. Yeah. Okay. okay, but it's essentially cool. the
1: same thing. It's essentially the same thing. <sighs> I'm okay with hyperdrive. You, oh, oh. you take a chill pill and you calm <gasps> down. Warp drive and hyperdrive are the same thing.
0: <laughs> no. Do they use antimatter in in the uh, in the in the hyperdrive?
1: Uh, it's, it's not probably. explained. Oh,
0: oh, it's, oh. In the movie. Star Trek explained it. So, what now? What now?
1: <laughs> Antimatter wasn't proven to exist. I'm going to take like these boxing
0: days. gloves that I normally wear so I don't scratch my face at night, and instead I'm going to use them for the, the record. Years.
1: Antimatter wasn't actually proven to exist until like 30 years after that was conceived of. So, I'm uh, just saying it was a cop out answer up until science backed it up. I don't care. Jean Moran and Mary's a visionary.
0: Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> have you guys ever heard of Johannes Kepler?
1: Of course. He was a famous astronomer, very famous astronomer very famous scientist. I believe actually he there's several laws of motion of orbital motion derived mm-hmm. from Kepler
0: which is why they've given the namesake to the Kepler Observatory which is discovering planets around other stars as we speak uh he was also in my opinion one of the first science fiction writers and not just in my opinion and also the opinion of Carl Sagan you can't, can't go against the Sagan can't go against the Sagan can't go against the Sagan you gotta love the Sagan cosmos just saying da, 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 da. Have you never seen Cosmos? I have not seen Cosmos. Oh, you need to watch it. It's amazing. And it stands to the test of time, and it is so good. Well, the
1: visual effects they built for the show were spectacular for the time yeah. period. Yeah. I, I, uh, I yeah. really miss Carl so Sagan. The, the premise is Carl Sagan in this fictitious spaceship taking you through the universe. <laughs> and, and <describing, laughs> That's adorable. It uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah. I make it sound campy and childlike. He doesn't take it to that level. Oh, I well. don't doubt <laughs> it. No. By the way,
2: Brickman, would you say that Neil deGrasse Tyson is like a modern day Carl Sagan? No, I would not say that.
0: Why? Because he killed Pluto, and I will never forgive him for that. He
2: did not kill Pluto. He, he did
0: indeed led the march that took Pluto and laid it on the block, and took the axe. He did so in hand and decapitated Pluto.
1: I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Neil deGrasse Tyson is your Will Wheaton. <gasps>
0: I never thought of it like that. He kind of is. He is the Wil Wheaton
1: to your Sheldon Cooper.
0: He kind of is. Yeah. I respect him, but I dislike him because he killed Pluto. Anyway, your point. The
2: reference of Pluto being a planet is now a point of ageism, especially for us. Like, we can look at young kids and be like, man, when I was your age, Pluto was still a planet.
0: I have so many other things that I could say. I don't need that. It's still what a planet.
1: Say, it's just called a dwarf planet now.
0: Just so demeaning. Listen, watch, read my very first blog post I ever did. It's <laughs> why, still you know on make, there.
1: why you know make series a planet? Yes, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Brog, A blog post.
0: Brog post. Blog post. Blog post. post. Okay, yeah. oh my God, the berg. Oh God, the berg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Johannes Kepler. He creates this really extraordinary piece of, of science fiction. Uh, which does have a little bit more of a magical element to it in the way that he actually travels into space. But while he's on his way to space, he ends up having to makeshift develop an apparatus using kind of like sponges and things of that nature to retain as much moisture on his body as possible. Because as he travels through that barrier between the moon and earth, he is, you know, would be sickened and, and, you know, die as a result. And he has to kind of like cover his mouth and in a sense alluding to the fact that there may or may not be any air mm-hmm. beyond that, or if it is air, is it breathable, breathable or what have you. Um, and then ends up making it to the moon and encounters, not unlike Lucian's story, flying creatures and quaved cave dwelling serpent monsters and fortified people who are living on the moon. And they're living in these massive cities surrounded by these enormous walls. And it's so cool because he builds two different cultures, one that lives on the dark side of the moon, and they are uncivilized, brutish, always trying to survive by being nomadic because there's no uh, ample supply of water on that side. They're kind of this wild people. And then on the other side of the moon, the side of the moon that faces the earth, that they have this enlightened civilization who's watching humans and developing in parallel to them. And the craters of the moon are their cities, and the rims of the craters are their fortified castles. Huh.
1: Joseph Campbell is totally going, I freaking told you guys already. <laughs> all stories are derived from seven tales, and this is proving it. Yeah.
0: It, it dealt with all these really pretty incredible issues, including, you know, matters of religion and faith, and whether these people had faith, and whether it civilized them or not, and all these things that were very thought-provoking and he uses his science, his understanding of his observations of the moon to influence so much of his science in his science fiction.
1: I, I'm gonna, not going to lie. I stopped paying attention after you said cave-dwelling serpent creatures because I immediately had a xenomorph attack. In my mind. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, they existed in the ancient world too. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> because in Aliens versus Predator they said they are serpents. Yeah. Serpents. <laughs> serpents.
0: Um,
2: no, they're my, not Serpents. They're xenomorphs. Moving on.
0: (laughs) I guess my point is, though, that here we have an example of a known and respected scientist using his understanding of science of the time to come up with plausible, at least at the time, plausible explanations for how an alien species would be able to exist within our understanding of science. Well, and that no, to me, I think meets a lot of the criteria that you gave as the Webster's dictionary. No, oh, definition. Definitely, definitely. Well, of, I mean, what science fiction is.
2: That entire concept, like aside from like, you know, what you just said as in terms of a definition of science fiction, absolutely, but he makes a story. That's what pulls me about science fiction, is that yes, it's it's you know, taking lofty concepts of Ideas, whether it's technologically based or scientific in nature, but it's telling a story at the same time—an arc, a beginning, middle, and end, characterization, plot twists, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I love about science fiction: is that it's combining multiple elements that I find fascinating in terms of forward-thinking technology, you know, advancements in civilization, and a really good story.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to go into great detail about this because honestly I haven't had as much time to to read up on it, but one thousand and one nights, the very famous uh so called Arabian Nights, which has been composed you know throughout the, the like eight...
2: Arabian days.
0: <laughs> 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 no. uh Aladdin is not included as one of them no. <laughs> but uh these collections of, of really fantastic stories uh well, oh, you got me hooked on that first one alone <laughs> they have um all sorts of really interesting concepts that also very closely mirror a lot of science fiction as we know it today, nice. including some really interesting stuff about robots. Um, the City of Brass, which is this really great story about an archaeological expedition, which <laughs> immediately captivated me. <laughs> Shocker <laughs> on that one. You had me at archaea <laughs> <laughs> Where they, they travel into the Sahara and they find this ancient lost city. Uh, and they end Atlantis? Up... No. No. <laughs> But they find things like mummified monsters and uh, robots and all sorts of really interesting concepts that you really don't find until much later, uh, including, you know, like these robotic horses and other really neat stuff uh, that is very, very much, I think, a huge influencer to much later science fiction. And I I had to mention it. And again, this is in around the 8th and 10th century C.E. Uh, the, if you haven't had a chance to read some of the stories of, uh, one thousand and one nights do so. And I think you'll find some of them to be very interesting in a science fiction aspect
1: and all because a chick just didn't want to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> so well, sh- shows when you're, when you're literally your butt is on the line, you'll come up with some amazing things that will keep someone from killing you.
0: I want to jump forward a few hundred years, because there's lots of stuff in between all these big events, but, I mean, we could go on for for thousands of, and thousands yeah. of years well, talking about...
1: All based on your now proto-science fiction definition, you could argue now that science fiction has its base in the early 17th century now, in about the 1650s. And I actually don't have the title on, on my list, but I was reading it in my initial research. My research mostly goes to 1805, which is where we start to conceive of as the more modern sense of science fiction
0: well I think that's a really logical next step because I'd be really interested in hearing you know let's talk a lot more about what we can all I think agree on as being the the birth of modern and identify with yeah yeah Yeah,
1: exactly so the last man as I was talking about by Jean-Baptiste Cousin de Grenville long last name
0: wait can you say that again
1: Uh, Jean-Baptiste Cousin de Grenville I've had one of those they're delicious (laughs) (laughs) and uh, Sarah can correct me if I'm mispronouncing my French or anybody out there what Little I Know About the French Language, I think I got it right, was a time travel story. Very simple as that. But he was actually traveling into the past, not into the future. Mm. And that's that's pretty much all I know about it. I, I, I looked it up very, very quickly. What I found fascinating, though, was there was a story that was written by Mary Shelley in 1826. This is after Frankenstein, but it was not published till after her death. Hmm. And Have you ever heard of Roger Dodsworth?
2: No. I have not either.
1: Roger Dodsworth? Uh, a.k.a. the reanimated Englishman. And the whole story Dogs was with. based off of, off of a hoax that was passing around London at the time where they believe they found a man who slipped into a coma uh, and was literally suspended in ice. So we're talking about cryogenics basically taking Holy place. Oh, Lord,
0: are we talking about the origin of a senoman?
1: Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right, right. Well, this, he wasn't that old. He was, he was uh, only like a few hundred years old, not okay. like a kid. Oh, man.
2: only a few hundred. Yeah. Only a few hundred. I believe.
1: I mean, if someone's read the story, I'm, I'm wrong.
0: How the hell did he find the ice in London?
1: Yeah. No, that's no, he got his way to London. He wasn't found in London. Oh,
0: so he was like frozen in the Arctic and then he kind of floated right. down
1: into London. Sounds something like along those America. Yeah. I think he was actually I think it was like Scandinavia or it was something in northern Europe. Okay. But nevertheless, you have this idea of cryogenics taking place very before early. we had mm-hmm. an idea of what cryogenics could could be or could do. This idea of suspended animation. Which I, I, thought, I thought was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I find that so fascinating. And I'm wondering if it's just because of a um Uh, a lack of real kind of written literature that you find from the Scandinavians going back pre-Beowulf you know and around that time Mm -hmm. uh, if you just you know because of that that you don't hear of these stories of of people frozen in ice because I would imagine that of anywhere in the world there in Scandinavia, you would find the origins of a lot of stories. Pretty far up north, yeah. You would find a lot of stories like that. I would, I would think, but we haven't heard any survive from right. that far back. <laughs> I'd be really interested if, if, through word of mouth, which was the primary method by which to deliver those stories in that part of the world at that in and around that time.
2: Well. Or even as a joke, like, I was watering the plants outside, <laughs> uh, something cold hit me, and I woke up 200 years later, and the plants were still good. <laughs> I don't know what it was.
1: <laughs> well, sir, the ne- this next one, I think, will tickle your fancy quite a bit. This was written by uh, a little-known artist named James C. Loudon, was pretty much ripping off the story. She wrote a little book called The Mummy, <gasps> or A Tale from the 22nd Century.
0: What?
1: Exactly. This one was my personal favorite when I, when I was looking at these Wait, old pieces. Wait, who wrote this? Jane C. Loudon. Never heard of her. Yeah.
0: We're not
2: even in the 22nd century at this point either. No,
1: she wrote it in 1827. Yeah. So she was going way, way ahead. Like, even to this day,
2: yeah. Th- that's really interesting that it would be
0: the 22nd century and not something like even further. All right, Brian, you're talking about mummies. You got my attention. I'm trying to pull up the premise thing. Hey, see.
2: you said the word muh, and he heard oh, mummies. He's going to say mummies. Mummies. Yes, he said mummies. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a kid in a candy store with that word. I like mummies.
1: Okay, so the whole article on Wikipedia, and it is a cited article, so for all you naysayers out there about Wikipedia.
0: Nay gonna naysay. You know, naysay gonna say, is going you know, naysay. Wikipedia
1: has more knowledge than any one college on it. And it's actually gotten it a lot citated. better with its moderators and, and exactly. making sure that the content yeah. so, you know, pretty good. Naysayers is gonna naysay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, 1827 no- novel written by Jane Loudon, Concerns an Egyptian mummy, shocking, uh, <laughs> named Cheops, who is brought back to life in the 22nd century. The novel borrows many themes and ideas from another popular science fiction novel by a female author of the same period, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, as well as the idea about a future filled with advanced technology. In addition, it features one of the first and earliest examples of Eric's favorite theme in the Literature? The mummy's curse. <laughs> uh, Voodoo. Cheops is the Greek... <laughs> Voodoo.
0: <laughs> Cheops is the Greek version of Khufu, who was the builder of the Great Pyramid. Ah. So this is an actual historical figure that they are bringing back to life. Uh, and not just the random and totally made-up Imhotep of the later mummy movies.
1: <laughs> and Eric brings it home. Very good, thank you very much. Hey,
0: you're the one who brought Egypt into it this time. I totally stayed away from it. I was to That's true. India. <laughs> That's true.
1: There was another time travel story um, from uh, 1836 called the Fort. This is the Russian translation of the words, because I couldn't pronounce the Russian. The oh, fore- give it a try. The forebears of Calimeros, Alexander, son of Philip of Macedon, by Alexander Veltman. Fakeman? Um, was Vakeman. another was another story of past time travel. It's about a man who goes and travels and spends time with Alexander the Great as he's riding through Europe. Interesting. And, Very interesting. Eastern because Europe.
0: past time travel, I mean, you hear about future time travel in that story I told you from India, but also uh, it's a recurring theme in stories from Japan. Uh, and a lot of these kind of uh, pseudo-mythological stories in, uh, from Japan. But that is so interesting to think now we have enough of a passage of time, we have enough of a accessible recorded history of time that now we're starting to think about let's going back into time, and let's clarify and understand things that we didn't know in the past, and let's fill in with as much um, information as we uh, as we can make up to make it even more interesting. And that's something that I think past time travel, has really oversaturated in the science fiction genre these days, I almost feel like. I feel like even more so than
1: future time travel.
2: Oh, undoubtedly. I was going to make a, a modern reference to a book, actually, not a movie this time, uh, even though it's being turned into a TV show or a movie. Eleven twenty two sixty three. I think that's, yeah, that should be the name of title. It was uh, one of Stephen King's most recent books that's about the assassination of JFK. Hmm. And that was the premise for like years leading up to it. And it's actually a a story about a man who discovers a wormhole that travels back in time. And uh, before he goes there, he's like motivated by this one person's whole entire sad life that he decides to go back in time to try to reverse that and starts creating some weird things that happen in his present. So if we were with, you know, Doc Brown right now and had the chalkboard, like this book. Creates, I want to say, maybe about nine different uh, alternate reality tangents. Like, Whoa. yeah, it's it's a long book, but it's really really well done, and there's definitely some um, influence uh, from these stories that you guys are talking about, as well as a uh, another story that we're going to get into in just a little bit. Huzzah! Huzzah! Good book. Um,
1: I will also like to mention too that Victor Hugo wrote a series of poems called Legends of the Ages. In which deals with imagery of both past, present, and future in, in 1859. Interesting. This is before he wrote his famous uh, Les Miserables novel,
0: French Revolution in, in space. space. In space. <laughs> in space. Oh. Jean Valjean
1: with a lightsaber. That's. <laughs> we should remake Lemizolab
0: <laughs> in space. space. <laughs> That would name be amazing. Jean, Jean. Jean. <laughs> well, guys, uh, I think this is a good stopping point. This conversation is <laughs> kind of needless to say, uh, ending prematurely. I think we're going to have to do a two-parter.
1: Oh, there's no question. Yeah. We have
0: to do a two-parter.
1: So same time next week then? Absolutely. And in the meantime, guys, please follow us on our Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at the Brickmont. And you can email me
2: directly at Kevin at Nerdonomy.com.
1: Of course. And then follow us on our main account for Twitter at Nerdonomy.
0: Oh, oh, oh. And don't forget, if you can, if you got it in your heart, if you got it in your wallet, we would love. Just love. Just a little bit. Just a little tiny bit of your money. Not for our own personal use, but to support Nerdonomy. We love what we do here. Everything that we're able to bring you every single week, we're committed to continue doing that. But anything that you can do to help us with our beautiful Nerd Cave, get an air conditioner in here. If we have requested so many times, we need it very badly. Uh, Anything and everything that you can do to support us, we would graciously, graciously accept.
1: Agreed. We will see you next week. Same Nerd Time, same Nerd Channel. Nerdonomy.com. Live long and prosper.